Hello, my name is Michael Rocha. I'm a university student who studies anthropology and a comic book enthusiast. A little over a week before I published this podcast, defensive end for the Houston Texans Christian Covington posted a tweet expressing his disappointment that Ben Affleck would no longer be portraying Batman in movies. He says, quote, genuinely sad that Ben Affleck is no longer Batman. He played an older, hardened Bruce that I feel was truly underappreciated, end quote. And I have to agree with him. Ben Affleck did a good job playing both Bruce Wayne and Batman in the DCEU, since he was able to portray a superhero who already has a lot of experience and his job has taken its toll on him. Now that's not to say that some of the preconceived notions and feelings that fans had when we first heard that Ben Affleck would be playing Batman were invalid, especially when you consider the other superhero film that he was a part of, but I won't get into that. Instead, I would recommend watching that movie for yourself and then deciding whether or not you think it's a good superhero film. And he's not the best Batman. But if he isn't, then who is? And what makes a good Batman movie? In this episode of Comic Topics, I'm going to try my best to answer these questions by looking at Batman's cinematic history. So let's get started. The first thing that I want to do is talk more about Ben Affleck's Batman. I want to dive deeper into the good aspects and the bad aspects of this version of Batman and the way that Ben Affleck portrayed him. First, the good. Number one, this is an older Bruce Wayne, as I've said before, and I like this part about Batman. This isn't a Batman or a Bruce Wayne that we have to see learn something. He's already gone through his training. He's already been Batman for quite some time, so we get to see him in this stage of his life rather than a novice at fighting crime and still working out the kinks in how to be Gotham's Dark Knight. Number two, we get to see the strategist in Ben Affleck's Batman. From everything I've ever seen and read about Batman, I've learned that he is a person who has a plan, he has a backup plan, a backup plan for his backup plan, and another backup plan for that backup plan. And we get to see this in the DCEU. This is a Batman who formulates a plan, trains, plans, and then executes what he needs to do to make sure that that plan goes flawlessly, or at least close enough to flawlessly as he can get. The third good thing about this Batman that I want to mention is that Ben Affleck looks the part. He looks like an older Bruce Wayne and subsequently an older Batman. Take Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns for example. In that story, we see an older Bruce Wayne come out of retirement and go back to fighting crime. But he's using harsher methods than what he would have used in his younger days. The events in that story nearly mirror what happens in the movies. Plus, the bat suits that we see in both forms of media are identical. The ears in the cowl are shorter. Batman has a bigger chest, and he has a 
much wider bat emblem on his chest. The other suit that we see Batman use in both the comic book and the movie is the armored bat suit. Again, those two look identical. They're mostly gray. They have the helmet that matches the cowl and they have the light up white eyes. Not only that, but both suits have the same purpose, which is to allow Batman to go one-on-one -on -one with Superman in a fist fight. Number four, Ben Affleck's Batman is able to portray both Bruce Wayne and Batman in the DCEU. And this harkens back more to Ben Affleck's abilities as an actor. I'll get more into this later when I talk about what makes a good Batman movie. But to sum it up, in the DCEU, we get to see the three different types of people that fit into Bruce Wayne and Batman. Whether that be the charismatic billionaire, the troubled man at home and out of the public eye, or the crime-fighting Dark Knight of Gotham. And Ben Affleck, using his acting abilities, is able to portray each of those characters in the movie. Number five, we get a look into the psychology of the Dark Knight because of the way that Ben Affleck portrays him. This is a Batman who is paranoid, he lies, and he does what he needs to do to make sure that the criminals of Gotham and wherever it is that he may be are punished for their crimes. And we also get to see him in pain throughout the DCEU. And that pain can stem from the grief that he feels because of his parents' death in Crime Alley, or it may come from the guilt that he's carrying around with him, which we also see in the movies. And that guilt can come from him not being able to do something about his parents' death, which has been shown before to be something that Bruce Wayne feels guilty about, or it could come from seeing Superman die and feeling somewhat guilty because of the death of the Man of Steel. Either way, we get to see deeper into Batman's brain and get a sense of the tortured person that he is. The sixth and final point about what was good about Ben Affleck's Batman that I want to make is his fighting style. This is a Batman who is unafraid to use his fists and his gadgets to make sure that the criminals of Gotham are punished for their crimes. We have seen this before, I know, but this is a Batman who, as I mentioned earlier, uses some slightly harsher methods when fighting crime. It looks like something out of a comic book or a video game, and looks like what I imagine a Batman fight should look like to the audience. Now all that being said, there are some aspects about Ben Affleck's Batman that I did not really care for. Number one, and this is probably the most popular one among people who dislike Ben Affleck's Batman, this is a Batman who kills. And yes, I know that this has happened before in the character's history. We've seen it in earlier films that came out before 
those in the DCEU, and we've also seen this in Batman's earlier days in comics. We've seen him snap people's necks, hang people from the bat plane, and we've seen him use a gun before. But since then, we have seen the character evolve to where he develops a strict no-killing rule. And because this part of the character was very much a part of him when these movies were made, I feel like we should have seen that in the DCEU. We should have seen Bruce Wayne and Batman reach a point to where they decide that killing is wrong in their ways of fighting crime. The second thing about Ben Affleck's Batman that I didn't really like was his paranoia and the results of that paranoia that play out in the DCEU. This is a Batman who I am sure has seen some very horrific things during his time as Gotham's Dark Knight, including the death of one of the Robins. As we see in the Batcave, there is a costume behind a glass case with graffiti on there that looks like it came from the Joker. And it is this paranoia that makes Bruce Wayne and Batman be so concerned about what could happen that that is all that he plans for. The negative possibilities instead of whatever positive possibilities there are out there for any given situation. A primary example of this happens in Batman vs Superman Dawn of Justice. In the scene where Bruce Wayne is talking to Alfred in the Batcave and mentions his plan about stealing a large chunk of kryptonite from Lex Luthor so he can form a weapon that can be used against Superman should the need arise. When Alfred questions this course of action, Bruce Wayne tells him about the fight that Superman had earlier in Metropolis against General Zod. A fight where several thousands of people were killed in crumbling buildings and on the streets of Metropolis. And he says that if even the slightest possibility exists that Superman could be against them, that they have to be ready for that event because it must be true. He wants to make sure that he is able to fight Superman because if his power were to go unchecked or if he were to turn evil, then all would be lost for the human race. It is this paranoia that leads to their fight at the end of the movie and the catalyst for the guilt that Bruce Wayne feels for Superman's passing at the end of the film. The third and final point about Ben Affleck's Batman that I didn't really like harkens back to one of the points that I made earlier about what was good about Ben Affleck's Batman which is that this is an older Bruce Wayne and an older Batman. I know I said that I liked the fact that we didn't 
have to see Bruce Wayne's journey to become Batman. But because of his age and because of his time as Gotham's Dark Knight, he is someone who is a lot slower than where he would have been in his younger days. And not only that, but he's also probably more stubborn and more set in his ways about fighting crime. We see him brand criminals. We see him kill. We see him use other methods that are much more harsh. And because of his stubbornness, we also get to see him be the paranoid person that I mentioned earlier. And it's this paranoia and his stubbornness which make him a Batman that is not exactly perfect. Now that I feel like I've covered enough about Ben Affleck's Batman, I like to look closer at the different aspects about what makes a good Batman movie. First and foremost, in order for a Batman movie to be a success, you need to have the right actor portray the character. The first time that Batman ever made an appearance on any screen was in the 1940s as part of a movie serial. Later on, people were introduced to a new Batman in the 60s when the late great Adam West donned the cape and cowl. This version of Batman has a much lighter tone and is much more campy when compared to his successors. He even has a different viewpoint when it comes to the criminals of Gotham that he fights. Adam West's Batman pities the criminals and would much rather see them rehabilitated during their incarceration and released back into society as better human beings than they were before rather than see them be locked away forever in an asylum or penitentiary. A wave of nostalgia comes over fans of Batman whenever they can find an episode of the 1960s television show or the 1960s movie where Adam West also portrays the Dark Knight. They are reminded of a simpler time before special effects were used and before superhero movies were such a big deal. Fans of the Batman were reintroduced to the character in the late 80s when Michael Keaton stepped into the spotlight and took up the mantle of the Dark Knight. I've been told before that at the time this seemed like an odd casting choice since before the movie was made, Michael Keaton was known primarily as a comedic actor. In fact, just a year before, in 1988, Michael Keaton portrayed the titular character in the movie Beetlejuice where he plays a poltergeist with more than a few tricks up his sleeve. Given this knowledge, I can see where people were wondering how Michael Keaton can go from playing a ghost with a very twisted sense of humor to a much darker character. But that's what fans got in 1989 and in 1992 with the sequel film and Michael Keaton reprising his role as the Dark Knight. 
Michael Keaton's Batman is certainly darker when compared to Adam West's incarnation of the character. The campiness of the 60s gave way to a much more serious tone in the late 80s. This is the same Batman fighting crime, but using stronger methods against the criminals that he's fighting, wearing a much darker suit, and truly struggling against his foes, including the Joker, Catwoman, and the Penguin. Fans of Michael Keaton's Batman will enjoy seeing this newer, darker tone when it comes to the Dark Knight after Adam West's portrayal of the character. Plus, seeing the Batwing silhouetted against the moon in the first film starring Michael Keaton is an absolute treat. In 1995, Michael Keaton passed on the cape and cowl to Val Kilmer, who portrayed Batman in the movie Batman Forever. This was a Batman who had a slightly lighter tone when compared to Michael Keaton's, but the character himself was a little more serious. We saw him struggle more with the death of his parents and tried to balance out being Batman and being Bruce Wayne. And we also got to see him welcome in the first Robin since Burt Ward's portrayal of the character in the 60s. Fans of Val Kilmer as Batman enjoyed the lighter tone of the character that is not quite to the level of Adam West but is certainly lighter than Michael Keaton and enjoy seeing the character be a little more serious than his two previous incarnations. Two years later in 1997, fans were introduced to George Clooney's version of The Dark Knight in Batman and Robin. Often considered to be the worst incarnation of Batman on the big screen, Clooney's Batman spends most of his time fighting with Robin than he does fighting people like Mr. Freeze and Poison Ivy and has one of the worst bat suits that has ever been used in film. And yet there are still some fans of George Clooney's Batman who appreciate parts of the film such as Bruce Wayne's journey to go from being someone who's a little more stubborn in the beginning to someone who's much more open and accepting at the end. In 2005, fans were surprised with the first in a trilogy of Dark Knight movies starring Christian Bale as Batman. Bale's portrayal of Batman goes back to the darker aspects of the character. And not only that, but we get to see him in his journey to become Batman. We see him start off as Bruce Wayne. We get to follow him through his training and we get to see him finally end up being Batman in the first film. We see him fighting against his most dangerous adversary in the second film and in the third film of the trilogy we get to have a satisfying ending to Christian Bale's performance as the Dark Knight. Fans of Christian Bale's portrayal as Batman 
appreciate seeing the character return to his darker roots and like being able to see Batman in a way where he could exist in the real world. Finally, in 2016, people were given the most recent incarnation of Batman when Ben Affleck put on his cape and cowl for Batman vs Superman Dawn of Justice. But since I've already talked a lot about Ben Affleck, I'd like to move on to the next aspect about what makes a good Batman movie. I'm talking about the man in the chair, the director. The director of any movie has a lot to deal with in terms of the film's production. First and foremost, they have to recognize their own vision and do what they need to from behind the camera to make sure that vision is realized. They have to consider characters, the costumes that are worn, the storyline, whatever props are used, the settings that they choose for the characters to act within, and many other aspects when a film is in production. A director also has to consider outside sources whenever they're filming their movie. In the case of Batman films, the director will have to realize that Batman has been featured in several sources of media before the production of their own film, including other films, television shows, and most importantly, comic books. A director can only hope that their version of Batman and their vision of what they perceive a Batman story to look like can live up to all these other sources of media. A director also has to consider the fan base of whatever movie that they are making. Again, in terms of Batman, the character has an incalculable number of fans worldwide. Each of them likes the Dark Knight for one reason or another, and they have their own opinions of what they would like to see in a Batman movie and what makes a good Batman movie. A director will have to consider this in order to make a film that they believe people will leave having enjoyed when they see Batman on the big screen. The first director of a Batman film that I want to talk about is Tim Burton. I would talk about Leslie H. Martinson, who directed the 1960s Batman movie, but because that movie is essentially a copy-paste of the television show that was running at the time, I've decided to move on to the late 80s. Tim Burton's Batman is a darker, grittier version of the character when you look at the other ways the character was portrayed before then. And his vision of Gotham is a place that is grimy and cold and riddled with crime so much so to the point that Batman has to step in almost nightly to make sure that anybody who is doing wrong is punished for their crimes. And even the villains of Tim Burton's movies are pretty dark when you look at the 1960s version of their characters. Tim Burton was working with what was essentially a clean slate when he was making his Batman films. 
he did have other comics to think about, but his version of Batman was something that people were really excited to see in the late 80s. It had been several years since Batman graced the big screen with his presence. And when people heard that a new Batman was coming their way, they became absolutely ecstatic. And when they left theaters, people were very pleased with what they had just seen. When Tim Burton left as director for Batman movies, Joel Schumacher stepped up to show off his vision for the character in his movies. And what else can I say except, yeesh. Joel Schumacher's vision of Batman is vastly different when compared to his predecessor. The darker tones that were established by Tim Burton were replaced by a much more colorful Dark Knight. Gotham City also changed in Joel Schumacher's eye. Away went the dirty metropolis and in came the more vibrant and once again more colorful city that Schumacher presented to audiences. Even the villains that he used in his films jumped on the bandwagon and became more colorful and outlandish when compared to their predecessors in the comic books and television shows. Just look at some of the costumes that were used. Riddler, Two-Face, Poison Ivy, Mr. Freeze, and Bane look like something that came out of a cartoon rather than a comic book. When compared to other Batman films, fans don't treat Joel Schumacher's Batman with the same level of seriousness that they would for other directors and their vision for Batman. Next was Christopher Nolan, who introduced the Dark Knight trilogy and fans were once again excited to see Batman on the big screen. Nolan's Batman returns to being the Dark Knight that we all know him to be. And Gotham City, while still a bustling metropolis, goes back to being a place that has both its highs and its lows. Nolan's vision for the villains was also different when compared to any that had come before him. The villains in Nolan's films were incredibly interesting and they made moviegoers want to analyze the villains more and dive deeper into their psychology. Even though Nolan still had to compare his vision for Batman against previous films and comic books, he was able to deliver a very welcoming sight to the big screen for fans of The Dark Knight. Zack Snyder was the man who directed Batman vs Superman, Dawn of Justice, and Justice League. But since I've already talked enough about that Batman earlier in this podcast, I'd like to move on to what else makes a good Batman movie. The third aspect about what makes a good Batman movie that I'd like to talk about is the actor's ability to showcase both the Batman and Bruce Wayne personas and do their best to differentiate between the two. Superheroes and secret identities almost go hand in hand when it comes to the comic books, movies, and television shows that we see. 
Not every superhero has a secret identity, but those that do try to go the extra mile to make sure that no one would suspect that this seemingly average person also goes out and fights crime in a costume. In an earlier podcast, I talk about the steps that Clark Kent has to go through to make sure that no one would even remotely believe that a seemingly mild-mannered reporter can also fly and shoot lasers from his eyes. Bruce Wayne has to go through a similar process to make sure no one would believe that he goes out and fights crime at night dressed as a bat. Most of what Bruce Wayne has to do to make sure that his identity remains a secret relies on his acting. As Bruce Wayne, when he's in the public eye, he has to carry out this portrayal of a charismatic billionaire. He's someone who is very wealthy and not afraid to show it. And he's also quite the ladies man, since he is seen hanging around supermodels and other beautiful women. He can throw lavish parties, is someone who is slightly egotistical, and acts clueless whenever the subject of Batman comes into conversation. Outside of the public eye, and when he's at home by himself, Bruce Wayne can drop the facade, and we can see him for the tortured person that he is. We see him grieve for the loss of his parents, and we see him have to deal with the struggles of keeping up his dual identity, whether that be the physical pain that it causes him, or the mental and emotional stress that it puts him through whenever he puts on his cape and cowl. As Batman, we get to see him as the ruthless crime-fighting vigilante who will not kill, but will go to certain lengths to make sure that his city streets are kept safe. During Adam West's time as the Dark Knight, we didn't get to see much of him portray both Bruce Wayne and Batman. Instead, we got to see more time with him as Gotham's protector rather than the billionaire playboy. But there is one instance that I would like to cite where we get to see him act as both characters in the same scene. In an episode of the 1960s Batman television show, Mr. Freeze demands a large sum of money be paid to him as a ransom, and who do the police turn to but Gotham's most wealthy citizen? So while the police commissioner calls Batman on the bat phone, one of his chiefs calls Wayne Manor in the hopes of asking Mr. Wayne for the money. What happens next is we get to see Bruce Wayne have a conversation with himself as he acts as both Batman and himself. We see him jump between two different phone receivers and while using the bat phone, we hear him use a darker, more serious voice, and while using the other phone, we get to hear him use a lighter voice to portray Bruce Wayne. This is enough to convince the GCPD to continue to believe that Batman and Bruce Wayne are two completely different people. Michael Keaton is truly the first actor to play Batman, where we get to see him portray both the Bruce Wayne and Batman personas on film. The first time we see him as Batman, we see him beat up two purse snatchers and dangle one of them over an alleyway to intimidate him. 
the first time we see him as Bruce Wayne. We see him in the middle of a party at Wayne Manor that he is throwing. And we see him display his wealth and his knowledge in a room where several pieces of armor that he has collected over the years are displayed. We see him be approached by one of his waitstaff and they ask him if it's alright to open up more champagne for his guests. Bruce Wayne is unafraid to do so and suggests opening up six new cases for his guests to enjoy. We also see Bruce Wayne woo Vicki Vale in this movie, who is a beautiful reporter and one of Bruce Wayne's several love interests in the comic books. This continues into the next Batman film where Michael Keaton reprised his role as the Dark Knight. As Bruce Wayne, we see him be the charismatic businessman who's unafraid to strike up deals with other wealthy industrialists and who captures the attention of Selina Kyle, who is the alluring Catwoman by night. As Batman, we see him fight off the remnants of the Joker's clown gang, and we see him battle it out with both the Penguin and Catwoman throughout the film. When Val Kilmer became Batman, there wasn't much to distinguish between Bruce Wayne and his Dark Knight personas. Both characters acted very seriously, with Bruce Wayne mourning the death of his parents more than once through the film, and Batman being a more no-nonsense character when he goes out to fight crime and meets up with his love interest in this film, Dr. Meridian Chase. When Val Kilmer left, George Clooney became Batman, and even less could be seen to differentiate between the Bruce Wayne and Batman personas. Whether in or out of the costume, this version of the character is someone who's very stubborn in his ways and argumentative. Whether he's talking with Dick Grayson in his civilian identity or when he's dressed as Robin, this version of Batman is insistent upon having his way when it comes to fighting crime or how to live life in general. Years later, Christian Bale came on the scene and we really got to see the differences between the two personas. As Batman, we saw him return to the ruthlessness that Michael Keaton portrayed as the character. We saw him fight crime throughout Gotham City with villains such as Ra's al Ghul the Joker, and Bane leading the charge. He's unafraid to use fear as a tactic when interrogating different people or seeming to appear out of thin air right before he throws a punch. As Bruce Wayne, Bale shows him to be more of a charismatic person and someone who is slightly egotistical. Whether it be in Batman Begins where we see him throw a large party at Wayne Manor for his birthday, or in The Dark Knight, where at a separate party, he makes a grand entrance on a helicopter and delivers a speech where he pokes some fun at Harvey Dent, and then later in the film, 
where he goes off on his yacht and invites Russian ballet dancers just because. We see the billionaire playboy really come out. When Bale passed the cape and cowl on to Ben Affleck, we got to see less of the charismatic billionaire, but a lot more of the tortured person that Bruce Wayne is, and an even more ruthless Batman. As Bruce Wayne, Batman shows us his paranoia and his pain through his concern for Superman's presence on Earth and the passing of his parents and Robin respectfully. We also see him as a very tired Bruce Wayne because of his nightly activities as Batman. Not tired in a way that makes him want to give up, but tired in a way that makes it seem like his other job takes a real toll on him. As Batman, Affleck shows us a character who uses explosives and ammunition to take out enemies and a variety of other more harsh methods than any who have come before him. He makes sure we see him as someone who is not afraid to get the job done. Another part about what makes a good Batman movie is the iconic Batsuit. This suit helps Batman strike fear into criminals, and whether it be because of the cowl with its long or short ears and the eyes that have been whited out, the bat insignia on his chest, the cape that imitates bat wings, the yellow utility belt around his waist, or the black, gray, and sometimes dark blue color schemes on the suit, it is impossible to not recognize the superhero when he appears on the pages of a comic book, in a television show, or a movie. Adam West's Batsuit looked like something that had come from the pages of the comic books that were being sold at the time. The torso of the suit was gray, while the cape, cowl, boots, and gloves had blue tones to them. One difference between the two bat suits was that West's suit used an all yellow utility belt. Michael Keaton's bat suit was mostly black, with just a little bit of yellow on the chest to really highlight the bat insignia for people to see. Val Kilmer's bat suit introduced us to a suit that used less yellow around the insignia and to the two small, shall we say, protuberances around the chest area that would appear later on. We also got to see the sonar bat suit, which was mostly gray in color and had a different cowl when compared to the ones that were used in previous films. George Clooney's Batsuit made the character even more of a joke. The protuberances that I mentioned earlier on Kilmer's Batsuit make a reappearance on the one that is worn by George Clooney, but this time they're even more pronounced, and the suit that Clooney wears later on in the film is somehow even worse when compared to the one that he wears at the beginning of it. Christian Bale's Batsuit 
was a breath of fresh air for fans of the character. The suit is all black, with the exception of a yellow utility belt, and has a slimmer build to it with more body armor. The use of the armor makes the bat suit that Bale wore seem more real, and thus made Batman feel like more of an actual person than someone who came from the pages of a comic book. I know I already talked a little bit about Ben Affleck's suit, but just to recap, the suit is mostly gray, with every other element being black in color. The ears on the cowl are shorter, the chest is bigger, and the bat insignia is much wider than what we had previously seen. To make a good comparison between this bat suit and another one, I recommend looking no further than Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns. I would be amiss if I didn't briefly touch upon the animated films that feature Batman. These are the films that truly need to feel like a comic book that has come to life, and the characters are acting out whatever happens on each page of the comic. The right character design is also needed for these films, and it is the 1990 Batman animated series that really set the bar for how Batman should look in these films. Most of the suits have a gray base. They all have the white eyes in the cowl that squint and extend within the headpiece. And there's also the yellow utility belt around Batman's waist. The right voice actor is also necessary to make a good animated Batman film. Among those who have used their talents to bring the character to life include Kevin Conroy, Jason O'Mara, and Troy Baker. These elements combined, as well as good storytelling and whatever other elements the director wants to use for these films, will make a good Batman animated movie. The last thing that I want to talk about, which makes a good Batman film, are the villains that he faces. It's been said that a hero is only as good as the villains that he's put up against, and in the case of Batman, this is incredibly true. The Dark Knight has a very large rogues gallery, and thanks to the comic books, movies, and television shows about him, this list continues to expand. These villains are essential for any Batman story, since they are the ones who provide conflict and a drive for the Dark Knight to do what he does, and they even reflect some of the inner turmoils of the Batman. In the 1960s Batman film, Adam West's Batman has to face off against four of his most iconic foes. These include Catwoman, the Joker, the Penguin, and the Riddler, played by Lee Merriweather, Cesar Romero, Burgess Meredith, and Frank Gorshin, respectively. These villains match the campiness of the 1960s show with their bright colors and cheesy dialogue. In the 1980s, Michael Keaton's Batman had to face off against his most iconic foe, the Joker, 
and then against the Penguin, played by Danny DeVito, and Catwoman, played by Michelle Pfeiffer. These villains matched the gritty tone that Tim Burton set in motion for his films. The Joker, while still relying on gags and gimmicks when he's being a criminal, remains a deadly adversary for the Dark Knight. The Penguin relies on trickery to turn the people of Gotham against Batman, while Catwoman has more than a few tricks up her sleeve to throw him off his game. When Val Kilmer donned the cape and cowl, he had to go up against villains that included the Riddler, played by Jim Carrey, and Two-Face, played by Tommy Lee Jones. These two villains were much more over the top and matched with Joel Schumacher's vision for Batman. George Clooney's Batman was pitted against three different villains in one film. These included Mr. Freeze, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, Poison Ivy, played by Uma Thurman, and Bane, played by Robert Swenson. This movie suffers from the same thing that has been seen before in other comic book movies, which is trying to add too many villains at once and have them all try to take center stage in one movie. Take Spider-Man 3, for example. The same thing happens when Spider-Man has to try and fight against Venom, Sandman, and the Green Goblin all in one go. And then in The Amazing Spider-Man 2, he has to face off against Electro, the Green Goblin, and the Rhino in one movie. These three villains match the general tone of the Joel Schumacher Batman movies, and are even more outlandish when compared to the Riddler and Two-Face villains from the most previous film. With Mr. Freeze making ice puns left and right, Poison Ivy's over-the-top outfit, and Bane resorting to just making gruntle noises, trying to have each of these villains in one Batman movie wasn't the best idea. In the Dark Knight trilogy, Christian Bale's Batman had to face a new adversary and reimagined versions of enemies that we had seen in previous films. These include Ra's al Ghul, played by Liam Neeson, the Joker, played by the late Heath Ledger, and Bane, played by Tom Hardy. These three villains matched the tone that Nolan set for his films by providing a much more deeper and personal conflict for Batman and, if they had been seen in previous films, were much darker than their predecessors. Ben Affleck's Batman has his own villains to face off against in the DCEU, and while a few of them have a personal connection to the Dark Knight, including Floyd Lawton, aka Deadshot, played by Will Smith, the Joker, played by Jared Leto, and Harley Quinn, played by Marco Robbie, two of the villains in the DCEU are not even in Batman's rogues gallery. These include Doomsday, a monster created by Lex Luthor, played by Jesse Eisenberg, who is more of a Superman villain than a Batman villain, and Steppenwolf, played by Albert Finney, who is more of a villain for the entire Justice League to face instead of just Batman. These villains match the general tone of the movies, but because Batman is not the central figure in these films, it's difficult to say how they 
fit in to the Batman mythos and make them comparable to the other movies starring Batman that come before them. In animated films, Batman has been pitted against villains such as the Joker, Mr. Freeze, and the nightmarish Phantasm. Every voice actor or actress who lent their talents to these characters made them memorable in their own right and matched the style of the cartoons at the time. When we watch Batman fight his villains, there may be something in our brains that tell us that something isn't quite the same as watching other Batman movies. This is probably because in the film that we're watching, we're not watching Batman fight his arch enemy, the Clown Prince of Crime. The Joker is the true antithesis of Batman, and getting to see both of them fight each other on a screen is really enjoyable. The two complement each other, with the Joker pushing Batman to be better and causing him to go to the brink, so that way he has to use all of his physical and mental strength, and Batman making the Joker a more interesting villain and someone we want to try to understand more. Throughout Batman's cinematic history, more than a few people have played the Joker. In the 1960s, Cesar Romero's Joker was more light-hearted, deadly enough for the Dark Knight, but someone who loved to laugh and had a lot of gimmicks up his sleeve to make life difficult for Batman. Jack Nicholson's Joker was a lot more ruthless to be sure, but still enjoyed a good laugh when the time came for it. Heath Ledger's Joker elects to play mind games with Batman and with Gotham City as a whole in the Dark Knight trilogy. He relies less on gimmicks and instead opts to mess with Batman's psychology as a hero. And while it may not be as much as his predecessors, he still enjoys a good laugh. We don't get to see much of Jared Leto's Joker in the DCEU, but from what we can tell, he is someone who is truly psychotic since he enjoys torturing his victims and then laughing about it. In the animated movies, we get to hear Mark Hamill be the voice for the best Joker there's ever been. That's right, I said it. This version of the Joker not only relies on bizarre gimmicks to throw Batman off his game, but is also someone who will play mind games with the Dark Knight to make his life an absolute misery. And to top it all off, he has a laugh that can go from being something that would be considered giddy to something that would be considered flat out sinister. Now that I've come full circle, I'd like to go back to the two questions I asked at the beginning of this episode. Number one, who is the best Batman? And there is no definitive answer for this question, since everybody's going to have something that they like or dislike about every Batman that has ever been. All I can do is provide my personal favorites when it comes to the Dark Knight of Gotham City. My favorite live-action adaptation of Batman in cinema is a toss-up between Christian Bale and Michael Keaton. 
I probably could have done without the voice that Bale uses, but I think that the way he portrays the Dark Knight is absolutely spot on. And I like the way that Michael Keaton portrays the Dark Knight after coming out of the campiness that was Adam West. Now that being said, Adam West was my first Batman, so he will always hold a special place in my memory as being my introduction to the Dark Knight. In terms of animated films, I believe that Kevin Conroy is the best Batman, since his talents as a voice actor lead me to imagine what Batman would probably sound like in a comic book. Number two, what makes a good Batman movie? Well, as I've covered, there are several factors that need to be considered when looking at a Batman movie. Whether it be the actors, the costume, the director's vision for the film, the villains used, or anything else that I might have missed, they all have to come together and be thought of when thinking about what makes the perfect Batman film. So now let me ask you, objectively speaking, who is the best Batman? And if you were in charge of making a Batman film, what essential elements would you include? Let me know by reaching out to me on Twitter, Facebook, or right here on the Anchor app. If there's anything that you think I missed when analyzing these Batman films, if you have any questions about Batman movies, or if you have suggestions for future podcasts, please feel free to let me know as well. My name is Michael Rocha. This has been Comic Topics. Thank you for listening. Thank you.